From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Carol Prince. So if you're a regular listener of Press Record, or if you're new, welcome. We're doing something a little different today. You know, we usually release episodes once a month that deal with a particular theme in oral history. And a couple weeks ago, we released an episode about oral history for movement building. And us finishing work on that episode coincided with the beginning of organizing and protests in Charlotte in response to the shooting of Keith Lamont Scott. So our last episode didn't speak to that work, didn't acknowledge it, um, that work that's currently going on in Charlotte. But in response to the moment that we're in right now, especially here in North Carolina, the field scholars at the Southern Royal History Program, we got together and we looked through our interview database that contains over 5,000 interviews, and we looked specifically at the projects on school desegregation and economic justice in Charlotte. And we compiled a list of 10 interviews, of which you'll hear some excerpts today. And hopefully these clips offer some additional historical context and serve as tools to talk about the history of economic and political disfranchisement and resistance that informs today's activism in Charlotte. The interview excerpts you will hear are from the following interviewees listed in the order that they appear in the podcast. Hattie Scott, Madge Hopkins, James Ferguson, Margie Ann Worthy, Eunice Farr, Diane English, Nancy Berry, Adrian White, Johnny Cunningham, and Patsy Rice Camp. On our website, www.sohp.org backslash podcast, you'll find more information, including links to the full interviews and transcripts from today's episode. You'll also find additional writing and resources about what's going on in Charlotte, as well as information about how to search our interview database for more oral histories about Charlotte and beyond. Charlotte, and have the changes been good or bad? Hmm, some of them are good and some of them are bad. Because really, the changes come, but we still don't get the benefit of a lot of changes. Hmm. You know, if the white man stand on that side of the street and you on this side, they'll do something to benefit those peoples over there, and they do just enough to shit my mouth. See what I'm saying? That, you know, the, some of the changes are good, but we're not, we don't get the benefit of them. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's, you know, we don't get the benefit out of it too well, because they're not going to let us, and they're not going to let you get but so high. If you get a step up, look like you're gonna be even with them a little. They're gonna do something to knock you down. It's not gonna do it. Separate is not equal, and we have become a separate school. We're all seventy-five percent or more African American. Mm-hmm. We are a separate school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not equal. 
and we are not equal. Mm -hmm. We were separate and we were not equal when I was here. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it. And I'm glad they didn't tell me mm -hmm. that I wasn't as good as anybody. Now, yes, I'm as good as and you're doing just as well. And education you're getting is just as good as those kids at Myers Park. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't equal. And in 54, when the Supreme Court finally uh, declared that uh, separate but equal was no longer the law of the land, then that is the decision that gave a lot of hope. Because okay. I, too, mm -hmm. uh, thought that I was going to directly benefit from Brown. You did? I, I did. Yeah, I thought so. Well, because I was going to a segregated school at that time. Okay. I would have been, let's see, Brown was 54, I was born in 12 on May 17th, 1954. <laughs> I thought at least by the next week. Yeah, go to the best school in town. Right. Uh, and then of course the next week brought nothing, the next month brought nothing, and then <laughs> the next several years brought nothing. <laughs> uh, so um, Southern school boards resisted right. desegregating their schools, and um, uh, Southern leaders uh, in the community uh, resisted any form of, of changing the old patterns of Jim Crow and segregation. Right. There was a case filed in, in 1965 to desegregate schools in Charlotte, mm -hmm. and nothing much happened with that. There was some uh, token desegregation. And then in 1968, mm -hmm. I think it was, Chambers filed a motion to reopen okay. the now famous Swan case. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and he filed that motion to reopen the case because nothing had happened. <laughs> Schools were just about as segregated as they were in 54 when the Brown decision was declared. And uh, fortunately, the case was brought before Judge McMillan. Right. Uh, so that in 1969, uh, he issued uh, what became known as the busing order, mm -hmm. where he basically said the same tools that were used to segregate mm -hmm. the schools and to maintain segregation right are the tools that should be used to desegregate the school. Right. Transportation mm -hmm. had always been used to enforce segregation. Mm -hmm. In Asheville, where I grew up, uh, there weren't that many black people okay. in, in the county of Buncombe, where, where Asheville is, nor the surrounding counties. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they bused students mm -hmm. 44 miles one way from Burnsville to Asheville in order to keep them in a segregated black school. And nobody protested. It was no big deal. <laughs> it was just what you did. Right. Uh, so, you know, you can see the extreme limits to which uh, uh, white folks were willing to go to maintain this bastion of segregation that had been built up. In order to desegregate the schools, you got to use transportation to do it because all the neighborhoods are segregated. So if you say neighborhood schools, then you still got segregated schools. Right. You got to mix people in together uh, in order to change the patterns that have been established. Um, so it became known as the busing decision. But, but what Macmillan did was, was was actually much more than busing, and I think this is important because it, it helps us understand some of what's going on right now. Okay. Uh, Judge Macmillan said, not only do you use transportation to to desegregate your schools. Right. But in your building program, okay. where you're building new schools, mm -hmm. I'm ordering you to build these new schools in places where you can get, uh, you can get natural desegregation. Okay. In other words, don't put the black schools, don't put a school in a black community because you expect it to be black. Mm -hmm. 
but put the school somewhere between a black community and a white community, and then people can get to it equally, and right. then you know the burdens uh, are equally distributed. Mm -hmm. And if that had been done, and new schools had been located in, mm -hmm. in the way that Macmillan ordered, then we wouldn't have this mess that we got now. Instead of, instead of doing that, uh -huh. uh, they started building schools in white population areas. The new schools were going in white population, further out the suburbs. You say, well, population growth, we got to build schools where the people are. <laughs> and if they were building schools where the people were, they were building schools where the white people were. Right. Uh, consequently, you had this donut that developed. With white, with schools, you know, the county being surrounded by the whites who were leaving the inner city, trying to run away from uh, desegregation, going out to the suburbs, and then school board building and locating schools in these areas where whites were going. So then you wound up with a ring of white schools around inner city, okay. black schools, with the newer schools being out to serve the, 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 those new to developed white communities, right. and the older deteriorating schools being left in the inner city where the African American population was, uh, and that's what happened to Charlotte. Okay. Charlotte schools have a resegregated, right. and, and they're continuing to resegregate every day. Mm -hmm. and that's part of what I mean when I say the movement has not ended. Okay. That, that, it continues that, because right. we still have black children mm -hmm. uh, whose educational needs are not being mm -hmm. met. And that's not because uh, uh, black students have to be in school with white students to learn. Right. It's because in order to assure that there's going to be equity of resources, right, mm -hmm. you got to educate everybody together. Which because if you don't, people. then the people who have the power and who can make the most political noise right. are the ones who are going to get the best teachers, right. the best libraries, the resources, the labs, everything. Mm -hmm. And eventually, we find ourselves back in the situation we thought we were mm -hmm. changing. Uh, I did grow up uh, going to a segregated school. I can remember uh, I'm next to the youngest child. I can remember my older sister having to walk to school because they didn't have buses for blacks in my hometown at the time. Um, and she had to pass by the white school and they had buses for them to walk to school and walk home every day. So, you know, uh, I can remember them talking about that. And I think the thing that touches me most of all about uh, working in civil rights and everything is uh, my mother used to go uh, uptown once a week, you know, pay bills, get groceries, and things like that. And uh, I used to love donuts, and I would always ask her to bring some donuts back. And she would bring them sometime, and then sometimes she wouldn't. And I, and I couldn't understand at the time why she didn't want to bring the donuts. I said, they're just donuts. And then I found out that if we wanted the donuts, they had to go in the back alley and knock on the window and, and wait until they decided to open the door or the window to, uh, to wait on them. You know, so that's, that's just kind of touched me. And I can remember I was a little girl and my older brother was living here in Charlotte and we used to come to Charlotte back, you know, from time to time. So we would take the bus and we kept couldn't figure out why he had not picked us up, why he had not picked us up and looked. And he came around and looked. He said, what you all doing in here? You on the white section. You trying to get locked up. And I'm looking like, we just in the bus station. He said, no, it's a black side, it's a white side, so you have to be in your side, you know. I can remember, uh, and this is terrible, I can remember going to, uh, we had like uh, a little carnival affair, you know, uh, and I can remember they had uh, bathrooms, white only, and they had straw out back for everybody else, you know, things like that, and you just, you remember things like that, and you try to get your children to know what you've been through, and you know, what they possibly could go through one day, you know, just like people in third world countries, you know, it used to be almost like that here for us.
you could think about the people uh, marching, you know, uh, Selma and what happened on Pettus Bridge and all that dogs turned to loose on people, you know. You can think about people, you telling people you can, I can either kill you or you could jump in the water, you know, uh, commit suicide. You know, it's just a whole lot of things that if everybody would open up their mind and ears and read their history and they would be more willing to work too. Mm -hmm. There was a junior high school right down the street, Wilson Junior High, and Miss Makenberg was further up the street. So if you had a, a brother or sister to walk down to that school to get a, a younger sibling or something, they got, the police got called. Mm -hmm. That was the type of thing. But then, too, you had a lot of parents who resented the blacks being over there. Right. And it just caused big, major, major fights. Mm -hmm. And then you had um, administration that um, I felt was not fair. You, I can remember one assistant principal, in the morning the students would just congregate when they got off the bus, not to fight, but to talk. If a black group stood together, he would tell them to disperse and go to class. On the other hand, you have 50 or 60 whites over here, and he walked past them would say nothing to them. So it always looked like... Did the students pick that up? Oh, sure they picked it up. Yeah. Sure, they picked it up. And so one morning I asked them, don't do that. You know, I don't mind you dispersing everybody. Mm -hmm. Disperse this group, then come over here and disperse this one, or vice versa, you know. Just don't single out a group of black kids because they're just standing here laughing and talking just like these children are, you know. But when the fighting would begin, they would call, I used to cry, they would call the, um, the county police. The county police was made up of all whites. From that area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when they came, they came with an attitude. Mm -hmm. And they would grab those black children and put them in handcuffs and put them on a long prison bus. Was it, were they usually single out the black boys or mm -hmm. a black boys? So it got so bad to where as they would come out here and they would jump the guys and they would, you know, it would be something brutal where they would slam their heads on the sidewalk mm -hmm. and bust their face and smash it in the rocks and all oh, it got awful. You and saw then, police doing that to yeah, drug and, dealers? Yeah, and then I started taping them. I started, mm -hmm. I started taping them with the camcorder mm -hmm. and that really got them mad. And then I started making complaints into the police department, what is it called, uh, internal affairs. Mm -hmm. And then it really got nasty at that time. I was real vicious at that time. <laughs> mm. So they would be out here and then I would see all of a sudden these police officers would show up mm. and they would be walking around messing with the guys, harassing the guys and mm. stuff and they would be sitting actually in my backyard up against my house mm. or all the way around the house, you know, wherever. And then one particular incident, I, I found that the officers were actually sticking drugs into these guys' possessions. Mm. Did you see this happen? Yeah, I saw that happen. Hmm. In which I guess the officers was frustrated because it was so many of them, but to me, I was a newcomer and I was just looking in and I couldn't see, I couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. And I had people get, what, robbed in my backyard, hmm. stripped naked, hmm. <laughs> get robbed in my backyard. And the police department would get here, but they would be later. Hmm. Yeah and they would always show up much later than what they need to, mm. so. No neighborhood, not especially with a, a large police force like we have here, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. it's, it should no neighborhood this close to your downtown area should have ever gotten this bad. Mm -hmm. And the city should have stepped in. The homes that are de that are dilapidated or whatever. Mm -hmm. The city should have done something years ago. Mm -hmm. No, it's still it's still a very segregated city, um, and it's been maintained very well that way, mm -hmm. uh, primarily through the lending lending community and real estate community. Obviously, the the realtors are the gatekeepers, but the uh, mm -hmm. the lenders also uh, have a big part to play in that. Uh, part of that is. Uh, is federal with the FHA loans years ago. I mean, it, it's not a new, that's not a new phenomenon. FHA cri lending criteria said quite out loud <laughs> that you only made loans, uh, you know, in certain areas. That, that, and that whole, uh, the term of redlining, that's, that's not just a made up term. I've actually been in lenders' offices and seen maps with red lines around certain neighborhoods. Wow. Uh, that's, you know, that's truth. That's not, yeah. that's not some, some story somebody made up. Uh, it happened to them and I have a great suspicion it's still going on. There's segregation in public housing. There are lots of public housing facilities around Charlotte. There are some in the nicer communities in Charlotte, mm -hmm. but those are for people that are not black. There is, there is just as many poor white people, poor Hispanic people, as there are black people. Mm -hmm. But they put black people in the inner city public housings, Piedmont Courts, Delahaye Courts, places like that are predominantly oh, black. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other public housing facilities in Charlotte that are not predominantly black. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens new. Piedmont Court, it was just not decided within the last five or ten years exactly. to tear down Piedmont Court. Piedmont Court is prime real estate here in Charlotte. Exactly. And that is the basis of it being torn down. Um, way back when, black folks lived out in the out in the country areas, in the rural areas. That's what they call now the suburbs. The suburbs. That's but it. when it became popular for white people to live outside the city in the suburbs, then they moved all the black people inner into city. the inner city, inner city. into Piedmont Courts, into Earl Village, into the, the public housing developments. But in recent years when it became more popular, this city dwelling, this urban living, mm -hmm. now um, Piedmont Court, Earl Village, places like that, they're the worst places in the city. It's propaganda. So you felt the tension. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, everybody else knew. You knew, being a black person, mm -hmm. where you by yourself or with a group. Mm -hmm. And when you get among white people, mm -hmm. they would just don't really uh, come out and say it. Mm -hmm. But you can feel the hostility. Okay. That was any way you went. Mm. And uh, your mother and father taught you mm -hmm. where your place was. Okay. They dwelling in you. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it just came up through the ranks. Okay. Uh, do, you, so, do you remember any lessons, I mean, strict lessons that your mother and father told you about race when, I mean, when you were young, when they told you not to do certain things around white people? Did you remember those stories? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I'm saying, they didn't have to really tell you because to a certain point, mm -hmm. 
See, a, a, a black person never did get drawn in the eyes of a white man. Okay, right. They either started calling him boy, mm -hmm. and when he gets so old, mm -hmm. uh, old man, oh, man, and then uncle. Uncle. Hmm. They call you uncle out here. So I asked me, you know, my dad started giving me that. I asked dad, I said, whenever. Well, you can't know white people. That man called you uncle for a year. He said, "Well, that's the way. That's the way. It, that's the way it worked." Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. you, uh, it was a. Uh, it came up in your gene. Right. But same thing. They would specify you don't do that. Okay. And you. Um, Long back that time, they didn't let no white, no Negro to look them in the eye and okay. stand up right. And they want you to beat around the bush and be looking down. Yeah, and, your feet and, yeah shit like that. Mm -hmm. But now, when you stood up and looked the rock in the eye, mm -hmm. he knew, he knew, because he, they knew black people weren't scared of. Uh, I used to laugh and, and tell people that many people in Charlotte were too sophisticated in the 60s to allow their prejudices, prejudices to be openly viewed. Mm -hmm. They may do it uncover, mm -hmm. hide their hands and talk behind their back, but they, a lot of people did not want to be known as segregationists or things like that. What did you think about that attitude that um, not should not showing it, but still having it. Was that an improvement? Over no, I disagree. Still disagree. Mm -hmm. I'd rather know that you don't want to be bothered with me than for you to kind of hide it. I cannot respect that. I, I can respect you wanting to, your space. And I'm likely to give it to you. But for you to be um, devious and deliberately misleading uh, and have what I call laden prejudice. As the old people used to say, you will throw a rock and hide your hand. I cannot respect that. And I, I can't respect that now. And, and I think that I can say to you openly, uh, I prefer not to be bothered. Do you get a sense that the civil rights movement is something that is still going on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he fought for us, but it's not doing us any. It did some of us some good, but as a whole, because all in mind, you know, we can do what we want to do, but you can't do what you want to do. It's still Jim Crow. It's still Jim Crow. I don't care what you say. What do you mean by it? The white folks don't want the black folks to have anything. They want to always be the boss. They don't want to see you living good. Thanks for listening to Press Record. As always, we want to hear from you. If you have thoughts on how oral history can be a useful tool to understand what's going on in Charlotte right now, email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. Tweet us at SOHP Oral History, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, or like and comment on our new Facebook page. Just log into Facebook and search Press Record Podcast and you should find us. 
Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Press Record.